Well, this morning I thought what I would do for our time is introduce you to the Yagarian people. They are a tribe in Papua New Guinea. And last year they gathered together, nearly everybody from the community, to have a celebration. They was a special event they wanted to celebrate. They were all in great anticipation of it. So many came from all around to go to this event. And as part of this event that they celebrated together, they had rolled out a, a red carpet, so to speak, on the grass. And some women who were part of the processional, who uh, were singing and uh, singing joyful praise, were, were uh, leading that processional of the red carpet. And behind them was a group of men who were carrying a crate, a special crate with some items in it. And it was common like a scene of, from the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament where there's this processional, and these men carrying the crate on their shoulders coming in. And they were treating the crate, the crate with great honor and special care. Uh, the crowd was excited and you could feel the excitement building as the crate was being brought in and they set it down on the table and they began to take the, the blankets off of it and open up this crate. And as they opened it up, the crowd screamed and yelled in excitement, just like a, maybe a winning touchdown in the Super Bowl. They were filled with exhilaration as to what was in this crate. And many then hurried their way down uh, from where they were sitting to get a look into the crate and also to uh, to see what was there. Just what was it that had uh, gotten their attention? What was it that they had spent nearly the entire day in a hot and humid uh, sun in order to to see? What was it that was treated with such reverence and, and honor and care and respect as it was brought out into the crate? What drew their special attention that day? Well, it was the fact that they received a Bible in their own language. They were celebrating the translation of the Word of God in their heart language, in their own tongue. That is what brought them together. They hungered for the Word of God. And there are celebrations like this all over the world. In fact, last year in Peru, there was a similar Bible dedication that was done for a people who had been waiting for the Scripture in their own language for 43 years. And in fact, a person that was there witnessed uh, an elderly woman who was hearing the word of God read in her own native tongue for the very first time, and she began to weep. She hungered for the word of God. I remember a girl, blind girl in France, who uh, had a gospel of Mark. I heard this story many years ago. She had the gospel of Mark in Braille, and she read it over and over and over to the point that her fingertips calloused, and she could no longer feel with her fingertips. So she took a sharp knife, and she cut the callous skin off of her fingers, only she cut too strongly, and she lost all of the nerve and sensation in her fingers. She was unable to read the Scriptures anymore. And in tears, she took the Bible that she had and brought it to her lips as a ceremony of sorts to kiss it goodbye and as she did that she realized something she could feel the braille with her lips so she stayed up all night reading the word of god what a picture one hungry for the word of god do these examples reflect the attitude of folks in american churches today you think Barnapol done earlier this decade said that 60% of those who called themselves born again christians had actually read the bible the week before the poll was taken of those who claim to know the Lord. How hungry are you for Scripture? Would you have spent an entire day sitting in the hot sun just to celebrate the entrance of a box of Bibles? Or would you be willing to cut your fingers or do whatever it takes so that you could have access to the Word of God? Well, we're going to look today at a young man who was also hungry for the Word of God. 
And his example is one that I hope inspires you to hunger more deeply for God's word. And we'll find his example in Second Chronicles 34. If you could turn there with me, Second Chronicles 34. The young man we're going to look at this morning is named Josiah. Now, Josiah had a unique heritage. His grandfather was King Manasseh. You remember him, right? Talked about him a couple months ago. Quite a legacy he left. Well, you remember that he was just a horribly wicked man, that he had led Judah into great sin and and immoral uh, idol worship. Uh, He had sacrificed his babies to idols. He had also uh, murdered uh, many of God's uh, saints. And he had led the nation to such a state that, if you remember in Second Chronicles 33.9, the assessment that God gives of the people of Judah was that Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Right? He led them to be more wicked than anyone else on the face of the earth. God did amazingly forgive Manasseh, as we talked about a couple of months ago when he cried out to repentance. But... Manasseh then tried to undo all the evil he'd done. He threw out all the idols into the garbage heap outside the city. He tried to get the people to turn back to worship the Lord, but it was too late. It was too late. It was too late also to turn his pagan son Ammon to the Lord. He had become a Christian uh, or a believer, that is, Manasseh, probably within the last five years of his reign, and there just was not enough time to turn all the wickedness that had happened. So Ammon carried on the legacy, and we see that if you look at Second Chronicles 33, we'll start in verse 21, beginning with Manasseh's son Ammon, who is Josiah's father. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. And Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and he served them. Moreover, he did not humble himself before the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. But Ammon multiplied guilt. Finally, his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his own house. But the people of the land killed all the conspirators against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. So we see here Ammon was just as wicked as Manasseh was. He ran out into the garbage heaps where Manasseh had thrown the idols, and he dug them all up and put them back into the temple of the Lord, put them back all over the land of Judah, reinstituted all the wicked and immoral and iniquitous idol worship that Judah had been experiencing for over 50 years. That is the state of the nation which Josiah inherited. It was a state in which they were more wicked and as far away from God as they had ever been in their 300-year history. What would happen as Josiah took the throne? Would that downward spiral continue? Well, let's see in verse 2 of chapter 34 what takes place. Josiah is being spoken of here. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images. And they tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars that were above them he chopped down. Also the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images he broke in pieces and ground to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then he burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem. Well, rather than the continuing spiral downward of this nation, a startling 
turn of events occurs. At just the age of 16 years old, Josiah begins to seek the one true God. And it was a genuine conversion because we see at 20 years old, he began to purge the land of the idols, all the things that his father Ammon had set up, which his grandfather Manasseh had built. Josiah began to purge them. And he would pound them to dust, these idols. And in fact, he ended up killing the priests that were leading the worship of Baal and these other things, ground the idols up and spread, the ash, spread them over the bones of those priests. He wanted to worship God alone, so he attacked idol worship with a vengeance. But we also see here in Josiah's desire to honor the Lord, it didn't stop with ridding the land of false gods. No, he next turned his attention to the temple. Because you see, in all those years that, that the people had been worshiping these false gods and had brought their worship into the temple, they had no care or concern for the building that was dedicated to the Lord. They had trashed the place. That bothered Josiah because God's temple laid in a state of woeful disrepair. So Josiah sent his official. His name was Shaphan. Uh, he'd be kind of our, our equivalent of Roger Baker. Uh, we had a building project, and so he... He got Shaphan to go and make sure that that money was collected. Shaphan went to the temple to initiate the work through Hilkiah, the high priest. So subcontractors were hired, carpenters and and masons, to do work on the temple. Now, it was during that construction, that remodeling that took place, something extraordinary happened, something totally unexpected. Let's look at verse 14 to see what that was. Chapter 34, verse 14. When they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. And Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Then Shaphan brought the book to the king and reported further word to the king, saying, Everything that was entrusted to your servants they are doing. They have also emptied out the money which was found in the house of the Lord, and have delivered it into the hands of the supervisors and the workmen. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. So there's a staggering discovery that takes place during this remodel. And that discovery is the fact that they find a book. And actually, uh, the word there is more of document or scroll. They didn't have bound books at that time period. But they found this scroll. And it wasn't an ordinary scroll. It was the scroll. It was the word of God. The first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. Literally says they're given by the hand of Moses. And Hilkiah's discovery gives us an amazing fact about this time period in Judah's history. They had no Bible. The Bible had been missing. It was gone. In fact, they hadn't had one for quite some time. And before we talk about how long question is how could this have happened where was the thing supposed to be kept how could you miss a bible i mean it wasn't like these tiny things we have today this was a large scroll perhaps five scrolls how did they lose it well in exodus twenty five sixteen, god had told moses to put the two tablets remember the stones that had the ten commandments written on them he told moses to put those in the ark of the covenant and then over the course of time as they were in the wilderness moses was was writing the first five books of the Bible called the Torah in Hebrew or the Pentateuch. You may have heard of that's Genesis through Deuteronomy. And when Moses finished writing those books, he gave some instruction to the Levites as to where the law was to be kept. Deuteronomy 31 
Verse 24 says, It came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete, that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. So thus the law was to be taken when it was finished and kept right next to the ark. It was probably too large to actually put in the ark. So Moses said, you need to keep it there. Now, where was the ark normally kept? Holy of Holies, right? When the tabernacle and in the temple. So as, as the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, there would be the Ark of the Covenant and the, the book of the law that writ, was written by Moses sitting there next to it. But in Josiah's day... It wasn't there. In fact, we read later in Second Chronicles that the ark wasn't there either. So what had happened to them? Well, some scholars believe that perhaps during the king of Assyrians' invasion in the reign of Hezekiah some 80 years before, some may have hidden it so that the Assyrians wouldn't get their hands on it. Uh, others believe, and I think it's more likely, that during the reign of Manasseh, some devout priest may have taken it so that Manasseh wouldn't get his hands on it to destroy it. In either case, if you think about the, reign, the length of Manasseh's reign, which was 55 years, Ammon's reign was two years. It was 18 years into Josiah's reign before they discovered it. The Bible had been missing probably at least 75 years. 75 years. Think of how many in that generation were born, grew up, and died, and never once heard God's word read. That was Josiah's case. He had never heard the Bible. So the people had the Bible it was stuffed somewhere under something, somewhere in the temple. Maybe it was in the outer storage shed. But the point is, is that it was put away and no one even bothered to look for it. I mean, it was treated like an old family album that your grandma and grandpa had that they didn't care about. And they stuck up in the attic somewhere just to collect dust. Begs the question of us, doesn't it? Where is your Bible at? Is it under a drawer? Is it collecting dust somewhere on the shelf? Howard Hendricks said that dusty Bibles lead to dirty lives. He also said if anyone, if everyone dusted off their Bible, the U.S. probably would have one of the greatest dust storms of all time. <laughs> it may not be far from the truth. But there was no dust storm for Judah, though, because they didn't have any Bibles to dust off. The state of affairs was especially tragic because God had made provision for something like this not to happen. It's very interesting. If you look at, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 17 for a minute. Keep your thumbs in Second uh, Chronicles 34. We're coming back to it. But Deuteronomy 17 tells us what God's instructions were to the kings of Israel and what He wanted them to do regarding the Word of God. He'd given them specific instruction as to how they were to handle the Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 17. We'll start in verse 18. Again in verse 18. Now it shall come about when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up against above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So what was the king called to do? Well, during the first year of his reign, 
he was supposed to write a copy of the law. How that probably took place is during the first year of his reign, during the Day of Atonement, because remember, no one could go into the Holy of Holies where the law was, except once a year the high priest could go in. That was on the Day of Atonement. So what would happen is the high priest would go in during the first year of the king's reign. He would take the law out and bring it to the king. The king would then start making copy, a copy for himself. And the Levitical priest would be there with him to make sure he wouldn't make any errors while writing that copy. And then during the next Day of Atonement, the high priest would then take the scrolls and the next time he went in and put them back. But that whole process would probably take a few months for the king to write out those first five books of the Old Testament. And if you think about that, during the first year of his reign, why would God have him take time away from, you know, trying to establish his rule and instead, hey, I want you to go off in a room, take some priests with you, make a copy of the Bible. Why did he do that? Well, you see, the king was to have that law next to him. The king was to be the one to be the example to the people of one dedicated, hungering for the word and applying it and obeying it in his life. That was going to be his measure to keep him from abuse of the kingdom, from straying from God and from being a wicked ruler. Well, the problem is this had not been happening for at least two generations. There was no copy of the law sitting next to the king. There was a famine in this land, but that famine was not for food. It was for the word of God. And what is more tragic is that the people didn't even care. There was no search for the Bible at all. I mean, how could a Bible be lost for 80 years and no one bothered to look? I'm sure the folks had heard story. You know, yeah, I remember Grandpa talking about sometimes they'd, they'd roll up in the scroll and, and uh, they said God wrote the words and they read them to us, but, but they never looked for it. They didn't care. It didn't matter to them. Is it any wonder why Judah was immersed in the most wicked state that they had ever been in for those 80 years? There was no scripture. As Hendricks said, you know, dusty Bibles do lead to dirty lives. And in Judah's case, absent Bibles lead to abominable lives. And before we look at Josiah's response to this newly discovered book, we, we need to think for a minute just about what this accidental discovery means and shows us about God. Right? God could have left them to continue in their rebellion, their lack of care and concern for what he said. He could have said, you don't want to know what I have to say, then fine. But God didn't do that. He allowed them to find his word when they weren't even looking for it. He allowed them to accidentally uncover the scripture which had been missing for two generations. God is merciful. (laughs) He is merciful. He preserved his word in spite of the people so that that generations and future generations could have the word of God. Think about the implications if he didn't let them find that Bible. Well, the end of verse 18 says that uh, Shaphan, who took the scroll to the king and he told him, we found a book. He didn't even tell him what it was. And he started to read from it. What was Josiah's reaction going to be? Well, we're going to see from Josiah three godly responses to a man who hungers for the word of God. And I hope that through that you'll be inspired to have those same responses in your life. So as as we're looking at how Josiah responded, I want you to compare that to yourself and and ask yourself, am I responding the same way that Josiah did to the scripture? Let's pick it up in verse 19, chapter 34. Verse 19. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes Then the king commanded Hilkiah, 
Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Asiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book which have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord, which is poured out on us because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do all that is written in this book. So right away we see Josiah's response. It's one of humility. Great humility, right? He listens, and as the word is being read, he tears his clothes. And that was a sign in that day of a person in great despair. When Jacob heard of his son Joseph being killed, the news brought by Joseph's brothers, Jacob tore his clothes. David did the same thing when he had heard about his son Absalom being killed in the battle. He tore his garments. That was to show just great distress and anguish. God gives an assessment of Josiah's response in verse 27, where he says through the prophetess, Because your heart, he's speaking of Josiah, was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Well, God says there, Josiah, you humbled yourself. And that word for humbled there means to bring oneself low. It's the same word that was used back with Manasseh. You remember he, he was drug across the desert over 700 miles with a, with a hook in his nose. And at that point along that journey, he realized, I need, to, I need to turn to God. And so he humbled himself. Well, see, Josiah didn't need a hook in his nose to bring him to that point. Just the word of God being read to him caused him to bring himself low. The word there for his heart being tender, it's the idea of being uh, fearful, uh, faint-hearted. He was very sensitive to what he had heard. The scripture made an alarming impression on Josiah. He stood shocked and dismayed. He had never heard these words before. This was the first time God's word was being read to him. He stood appalled. He was dismayed. He was sobered and he wept. He wept before God as he tore his clothes in anguish. You know what? What God said mattered to him. It cut him deeply. It struck his very heart. Just the Bible being read to him. And that's not the only time that we see this kind of response to God's word. Remember back in in Ezra's day in Nehemiah 8, after the captivity and the people gathered in Jerusalem, the temple had been built, the wall had been rebuilt, and he gathered all the people there early in the morning. And it says there in verse 3 of chapter 8 in Nehemiah that the people were eager. They eagerly anticipated the Bible being read. And they stood there from morning until afternoon, till lunchtime, listening to Ezra read the scriptures. It says there in chapter 8 that Ezra had to calm the people down because as his word was being read, they were weeping and mourning. They had hearts that were tender to the scripture, just as Josiah. Yet there are so many today that are unaffected when the word is read or when they read the word. They're like Josiah's son, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim uh, had uh, lived in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah was writing the scriptures and through the book of Jeremiah, through Baruch as scribe. And what happened was uh, some, kings of, some of the king's officials heard from this book. And so they brought it to the king. King, you've got to hear this. You've got to hear this. And so as the word of God through the prophet Jeremiah was being read to the king, listen to the king's response. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it out of the chamber of Elishama the scribe. And Jehudi read it to the king, as well as to all the officials who stood beside the king. 
Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with the fire burning in the, and I'm going to spell this, B-R-A-Z-I-E-R. I said brazier in the first service, so. Um, we're going to call it a fire pit, okay? Because I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, when Jehudi had read three or four columns, the king cut it with a scribe's knife and threw it into the fire that was in the fire pit until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pit. Yet the king and all his servants who heard these words were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments. Interesting that Jeremiah notes that, that Jehoiakim's father, Josiah, when he heard the word of God read, he tore his clothes. But Jehoiakim, he sat there, listened for just a moment, three or four columns were, and he gets up, he takes the scribe's knife and he rips apart the scripture, throws it in the fire. No humility before the word of God. Brazen rebellion. This continues to go on. This is nothing new. Beginning in 1820, Thomas Jefferson wrote an edited version of the New Testament. Have you heard about this? It's called the Jefferson Bible. And in fact, for a time in Congress, every congressperson got a copy of this. Well, it's interesting, not interesting, uh, appalling actually, is during the editing process as Thomas was, uh, Jefferson was going through the New Testament, he took scissors and he physically cut out those portions of Scripture that has anything to do with the supernatural, with the resurrection or miracles. And then he took all of the uncut portions, pasted them together so that he could have what he felt was a more accurate, accurate and purely moral document. There's no humility before the Scripture. Let's not fail to learn a lesson here for ourselves. You know, if we ignore or reject or set aside any part of the Scripture, any of the commands, any things that God has called us to do, if we refuse to listen or do those things, it's the same thing as taking a pair of scissors and cutting those pieces out of your Bible. Josiah didn't do this. He was humble before the Word of God. Every word was to be accepted and listened to. Isaiah 66, 2, right? God says that, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles or literally quakes or shakes at his word. The idea there is is a response of, of deep respect and awe and reverence and even a little bit of fear. If someone came in here with a semi-automatic and began yelling at us these instructions, how do you think you'd respond? Would you, would he have caught your attention? Would you be hanging on his every word? Believe me, you would. Something similar to that happened to me about 15 years ago when I lived in Van Nuys. I was going to a neighbor's house to borrow something from them. And as I was in the doorway, just opening the door, I felt something on the back of my neck. Turn around, there was a guy pointing a gun right at me. He said, get in, get on the floor. Believe me, he had my attention. I was trembling, literally, at his word. Josiah trembled at the word of God. How about you? What is your attitude? When you read or hear the word of God, do you listen intently or do you give it a quick thought and move on? Does it move you? Does it stir you like it did Josiah? Does conviction come when you learn of areas in your life that aren't pleasing to the Lord or do you dismiss it? Is his word truly food for your soul or is it just another book? Do you revere it? Are you humble before it? Or is your response something like, I'm, I've got too much to do today so I can only squeeze five minutes in? Or I've... I've read this story before. I've heard it. Yeah, Josiah, yeah, I know about that. Nothing new. Or, you know, this sermon is dry. Man, this preacher is boring. You know, that may be the case. But <laughs> but the part when I'm reading the Scripture, that, 
It's a little different. You know what? Having read or heard something before, and I've done this, you know, you kind of start speeding through. I, I'm familiar with this. You know what? When we do that, it's, it's kind of like if someone put a meal before you and you tell them, you know what? Uh, that won't uh, nourish me at all. I, I had that last week. Right? It's the same thing. Just because we've eaten before of the same food doesn't mean that we still we don't need it anymore. Right? The Scripture is our nourishment. And whether or not you've heard the story a hundred thousand times, you still need His Word. You need to be nourished by it. Just like that oatmeal every morning. It's my son's favorite breakfast. We need to learn from Josiah's example and humble yourself before God's Word. Let's look at verse 29 to see Josiah's next response to the Scripture. Actually, let's go down to verse 31. I'll come back to 29 in a minute. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant written in this book. Moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand with him. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. You see, Josiah's second response here is obedience. He heard what God said, what God called him to do, and he said, I need to do it. And that's the natural response of a humble heart, is to obey, is to desire to do what God's called us to do. And you notice what characterized his obedience here. This wasn't some robotic or passionless uh, commitment to keep a list of rules just to keep him out of trouble. That's, that wasn't his attitude or motivation to obey the Lord. That's not what God wants at all, right? What's God always after? It's after the heart. And that's what we see in Josiah's commitment here. He says he makes a commitment with all his heart and with all his soul to carry out what the Word of God has told him. He didn't see it as a life of drudgery. He saw it as an opportunity to worship. He had love for God now, and he wanted to manifest that love by doing what God had told him to do. And we see that clearly in his life. If you look at verse 33 and look at the things that Josiah does in response to what he heard from the Word. Verse 33, Josiah removed all the abominations from all the lands belonging to the sons of Israel and made all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. Throughout his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord God of their fathers. Then Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem and they slaughtered the Passover animals on the 14th day of the first month. He set the priests in their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of the Lord. What we see Josiah doing here is he obeys God with a vengeance. He makes a final purge of all idol worship. And notice here, it not just in Jerusalem and the surrounding regions in Judah where he was king. He actually went into Israel. He went into the northern kingdom and said, Hey, we got to clean up our act, folks. We need to get rid of all these idols. And so he makes a total purging of all the land of idol worship. And then he institutes the Passover, which hadn't been celebrated in 80 years. And in fact, Josiah had moved his Passover to be such an exuberant celebration that it says later in verse 18 of chapter 35 that there was none like it since the days of Samuel, which was 400 years earlier. Josiah also encouraged the priests to fulfill their responsibilities. He said, guys, you've got to quit, quit sleeping in now. We're worshiping the Lord. He wants you to do your responsibilities so that we can have proper and godly worship in the temple. And he encouraged them to do that. See, Josiah was obeying with all his heart and soul. He had reckless abandon to do what God wanted him to do. And it was joyful obedience. Is that your desire? 
When you hear the scriptures, when you hear what God has called you to do, do you faithfully obey everything that he tells you? Is there a conviction to do that with all your heart and soul? When God speaks, are you quick to apply it diligently? Or do you make God wait? Josiah immediately did these things. It was all in that same year that he heard the word of God. He implemented all of these practices to obey. Are there some commands that you might tend to ignore or gloss over? I mean, there's one area that I I see this happen a lot. I see it a lot in the home. Husbands, when God's word tells you to sacrificially love your wife, to, to nourish, to cherish her, to live with her in an understanding way, to honor her, how are you doing with that? Are you obeying God with a vengeance? Is that how your wife would characterize you? Yeah, I know he blows it sometimes, but man, he's really working at this. Wives, when Scripture tells you to submit to your husbands, to pursue a gentle and quiet spirit, do you do that with your whole heart or have you put some conditions on that? Well, I would if my husband would just stop or, you know, I would if he would just lead. You know, I I see so many marriages where I think these passages just have gotten cut out of the Bible. People look at it as too hard. Do you think it was easy for Josiah to stand up before the people who had been in wickedness and idolatry for 80 years and tell them, this, we're stopping this. This is not happening anymore. This was an entire nation that was steeped in wickedness. Do you think he'd have no opposition to that? But Josiah didn't let that stop him. He did what was right. He was committed to obey the word of God. Children, how are you doing? And following the commands that God has given you to obey your parents quickly, cheerfully, and completely. Or do you have some conditions on that? Or do you do, just do it when you feel like it? Do you complain? Do you delay? Brothers and sisters, are you giving God every area of your life? You know, as you think about it, does, does this wholehearted commitment to fully obeying God in every area with all your heart and soul, does that mean that you're going to give some things up? Oh, yes, of course it does. When I said I do to my wife, Tina, you know what I was saying to everyone else? I was saying I don't to the rest of the world. I joyfully gave up all other women on this earth because of my love for my wife. That's what Jesus said when he said, if you love me, You'll keep my commandments. You'll be wholly devoted to me. You will give other things up because of your love and devotion to me. That's what God is after. And if your obedience is a burden to you, and sin is hard, but, but if it's a burden, if, oh, I gotta, I gotta obey the Lord in this too. Jesus said his burden's light, not heavy. He will help you with it. But if it's a burden to obey, you need to check your motives. Why are you doing it? Josiah was able to obey the Lord because he loved God and and was experiencing God's grace in his life. So we've seen how Josiah humbled himself before God's word. We've seen how Josiah did at all costs obey what God said in his word. Let's look at the third response in verses 29 through 30. And we'll see here that this third response of a man who hungers for God's word is to proclaim it, to proclaim it. Verse 29 Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people from the greatest to the least. And he read in their hearing all the words 
all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. So Josiah gathers everybody together. And I mean, everyone, all the people, everybody, we're coming. We're going to gather together. And he did that not so that he could give some eloquent speech like we're hearing today from our presidential candidates. He did that not to increase his own popularity, not to take a census. But the sole reason he wanted to gather everyone together on that special day was to make sure that everyone heard the word of God. Because to Josiah, you see, what God said mattered, not just to him, but to everyone. In fact, it mattered so much. Rather than having the priests read, he read it himself. He read the word of God to the people. You see, Josiah was compelled to declare God's truth. It's the same thing that you and I are called to do. We are called to declare praises of God. We're called to declare His Word. We're called to proclaim His truth. Psalm 105 says, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Listen to this. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Speak of all His wonders. Psalm 89 says, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known Your faithfulness. Psalm 145, one generation shall praise your works to another. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts. We're called to be declaring God's word to the people. How are you doing in that? Are you making known his deeds? Are you speaking of the glory of his kingdom? There's an example of this back in 2 Chronicles 9. I want you to turn there for a minute. 2 Chronicles 9. It's the Queen of Sheba. You remember that story? She's the Queen of Sheba. She's from Gentile nation. She comes to meet King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. And as she spends time with Solomon, asking him all kinds of questions, it says there he was able to answer every one of them. She was amazed. And then it says that she looked around and she saw all the wealth, for Solomon was very wealthy, all the wealth of the nation, all those things that Solomon, he was able to understand the intricacies of nature and all kinds of things. And she looked around her and saw the temple of the Lord and how ornate it was and his own palace. She was full of amazement. It says in verse 4 that literally she had no breath in her. Her breath was taken away. She was speechless. Like, wow, this is amazing. But what's interesting is what she says in verse 8. As she responds to all this that she's seeing, notice what she says. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, she's speaking to Solomon, setting you on his throne as king for the Lord your God, because your God loved Israel, establishing them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. You know what? The queen of Sheba knows some things here. She knew about the fact that God was sovereign. She knew about the fact that God had put Solomon on the throne. She knew that God desired justice and righteousness. She knew God had made an eternal covenant with Israel. She knew God's name, Yahweh, or the Lord, it says here. It repeats it several times. How did she come about that information? Did it just come to her? Somebody told her, probably Solomon. God got the credit for all that she saw because somebody spoke to her, declared God's praises, told her God's truth. And I find that very interesting. She wouldn't have known all of that unless somebody had spoken it to her. And you need to be doing the same thing. People are not going to come by spiritual truth, the truth of Scripture on their own. You need to tell them. Romans 10, how will they hear without a preacher? 
We're all preachers. We're all to be proclaimers. People need to hear. Be what Josiah was. Do what he did. He publicly declared what God said. Give credit for what God has done in your life. Do that freely in any situation. Speak of his kingdom. But, you know, doing this will not come without a cost, right? If you start giving God credit for things publicly, people are going to notice that. And as I said before, you know, Josiah took some risks in doing this. Josiah took a great risk in gathering all the people together to read from them the scripture and then tell them to do what it said. Remember, as I said before, these people were used to for generations rebelling openly against God. You know, some some people could have risen up and assassinated Josiah, just like they did Ammon. But Ammon, or Josiah, excuse me, did not let the fear of man dictate doing the right thing. I mentioned earlier about that time when I got held up. You know, that that occurred, uh, you know, like I said, when uh, I opened the door, he told us all to get down on the floor, which we did quickly. Um, I was at my neighbor's house and the unfortunate thing for all of us was, you know, he was demanding money, but we were all college students and we didn't have any money in that apartment. We were getting wallets and purses and there's nothing. And the guy's getting agitated, um, which is making us nervous too. Uh, so along the way, he just says, fine, fine. Um, you, and he points to my neighbor and says, you, I want you to take me to your bank and get me some money. So he points the gun at him, rushes him out of the apartment and into his car, into my my neighbor's car, to take him to the ATM. By the way, my neighbor's wife was due any day with child. Um, and my friend told me what happened in the car as they went. As the man was pointing the gun at him, telling him to you know go to the bank to get the money, my friend asked him, or told him, he said, you know what, I'm, I'm not afraid to die. I'll be with the Lord in heaven when I die. What about you? Where will you be? And he proceeded to share the gospel with that man in the car with a gun pointing at his head. You see, my friend knew that that man needed to hear the word of God, didn't he? He needed it. Uh, Ask me later what happened at the end of that story. Despite the danger that it posed to himself, my friend proclaimed, declared the word of God. How about you? How do you compare to him or to Josiah? Do others at your work, your family, your neighborhood, do they hear scripture from your mouth? Do they hear the truth of God coming from your lips? Do you feel compelled to tell them the truth, the only truth that they need to be saved? When someone says something like there are many ways to heaven or, or you know, there is no God, do you respond? Or do you remain silent? Dads, how much and how often are you reading or discussing the Scripture in your, in your own homes? You have a captive audience there. Josiah responded to the Word of God in humility. He responded to the Word of God in obedience. And he responded to the Word of God by proclaiming it. And his epitaph in 2 Kings 23 says of him that before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul. And with all his might, if you want that to be your testimony, make your commitment to the scripture the same as Josiah's. Have that hunger in your heart for the word of God to be humble before it, to obey it and to proclaim it just like Josiah did. And don't underestimate the impact you can make if you do that. 
It says in verse 33 that Josiah's impact on the entire nation of Judah was that they followed the Lord God all the days of Josiah's life. From a nation that was the most wicked in all the planet to one that followed the Lord because of one man, because of God's word. So what does Josiah have to teach us today? How do you measure up to his example? You know, I've used this word hunger a lot this morning intentionally because God commands you to hunger for that word, literally. You remember 1 Peter 2? I know a lot of you have heard this passage. It talks about, it says, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn babes, what? Long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Long for. That's a command. That's a command to be hungry for. It's a command to have an insatiable desire greater than that or equivalent to that of a baby for milk. Right? And we know what kind of craving that is, right? When they're hungry, they let us know about it. We don't need to coax them. We don't need to remind them to eat. They tell us. And in fact, if they were able to pick something up and throw it at us, they would to get our attention. I'm hungry. Feed me now. Now, 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 now. Food, food, food. Right? That's what they're saying. And nothing's going to dissuade them from that passion. You know, God chose that comparison intentionally. He wants us to have that same desire. The word, the word, the word. Give it to me now. I've got to have it. Hunger for it. Desire it. Doesn't it seem a little odd, though, that God would command you and me to have a desire that seemed a little strange because he didn't say you read the word he didn't give us some action meditate on it or take these steps to be in the scripture he said hunger for it desire it crave it long for it if you don't have the desire or the longing god is ordering you to get it find it you and you can't say, well, it's not there. Uh, you know, that's a feeling. How can you generate a feeling? I, I just, I don't have the desire uh, like I should. So I guess I just don't have it. There's nothing I can do about it. Well, if there was no way for you to get it, then God would not command you to get it. Didn't Jesus command the paralytic who couldn't walk to get up and walk? How could he do that? He was paralyzed. And Jesus said, get up and walk. As John Piper said, we must trust that God gives what he commands. If God tells you to strongly hunger for his word, then you believe him that you can. The question then becomes, well, okay, well, how do I get that longing? Okay, God's commanding me to have it. How do I get it? Well, we always got to start at the first place, right? If you don't have that hunger for scripture, if you've never really experienced it, you've got to ask, is the Holy Spirit in me? Has God changed me? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me, right? When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit working in you, as you hear the word of God, that hunger will grow. So if you don't see it happening, you need to ask yourself, have I truly repented and placed my trust in Jesus Christ to save me through his death on the cross? Secondly, since God commands you to desire his word, then you need to ask him for the desire, right? You need to beg him for it. You need to tell him, Lord, I desire the desire. Please give it to me and do that every day. Don't tell me, well, I I prayed that once two years ago and God hasn't answered that prayer. So 
Each and every day, you need to beg and demand. Say, God, you must give me that desire. Every time you wake up in the morning, God, give me a desire for your word today. Please, please. Jesus taught us that prayer needs to be persistent, right? God wants us to be coming to him all the time. And this will be a prayer according to his will, to long for his word. And as you continue to beg God for the desire, don't sit there and wait for the holy zap. And we do this a lot, right? I prayed about it, so Lord, whenever you're ready, just let me know, right? You know, we may not lay down, but I think a lot of times we have that attitude. I love this quote from one man said, God feeds the birds, but he doesn't throw the food into their nests. All right. One of the actions you're to take is given right here in First Peter 2. He says, putting aside all malice, envy, hypocrisy, slander, long for the pure miracle of the word. Simply put, we need to flee sin. And I found that next to not being converted, this is probably the greatest hindrance to having a hunger for God's word. And that's entertaining other desires. We need to be pursuing the one desire to long for his word. And at the same time, we need to be getting rid of competing desires. We've got to starve them off. And usually when someone comes and tells me, or in my own life I experience this, when I'm struggling with just the word is dry, I'm not desiring it or hungering for it. And they tell me that, I say, well, are you struggling anywhere? There's some sins in your life you're not dealing with because those will sap that hunger. They will sap it out. Beg God for the hunger and then you need to deal with sin in your life. You need to flee sin. The word keeps you from sin, right? But sin keeps you from the word. Another action you need to take is a very simple one, and that is to spend time in it daily. Like Tozer, you need to look at any distraction that keeps you from the Bible as your enemy, however harmless it may appear. Psalm 1-2 says of the godly man that his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates every once in a while, day and night, right? Continually. One man said the Bible is meant to be bread for daily use, not cake for special occasions. You know, wear out your Bible from overuse. You know, it's okay to have to go get a new Bible. It's okay to wear the one you have out. Listen to some of these uh, quotes. A well-worn Bible is a sign of a well-fed soul. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. That's a good one. A Bible that has frayed edges usually has an owner that doesn't. Take a look at your Bible real quick. What's it look like? You know, this book is of infinite value because it it contains the mind of God. It it contains the words of eternal life. And there have been many in history who have died just for having one. There have been many in history who have been tortured and murdered for giving it to others. In 1384, John Wycliffe was burned at the stake. You know what his crime was? He had the audacity to translate this into English and then to try to give it to the common people. So they burned him at the stake for it. In 303 A.D., Roman Emperor Diocletian, he intensified his persecution of Christians by issuing a decree to seize all Christian scriptures. He wanted them seized and destroyed, burnt. Historian Thomas Armitage writes the following about this persecution. The aim of the persecutors was to destroy every copy and cry, and the cry passed up and down the empire, burn their testaments. 
Many gave up the sacred book willingly, while others preferred death to this treachery. An African magistrate demanded that Felix should give up his Bible for burning when Felix answered that he would rather be burnt himself. He was then loaded with chains, sent to Italy, and beheaded. In Sicily, Euplius was seized with the Gospels in his hand and put on the rack. And when asked, Why do you keep the Scriptures forbidden by the emperor? Euplius answered, Because I am a Christian. Life eternal is in them. So they took his Bible, hung it around his neck, put him on the rack, and cut off his head. Because he wouldn't give it the Bible up. How valuable was the Word of God to those two men? They treasured the Word of God so much, they willingly lay down their life and give up their Bible. There's a dear brother named Daniel Wong, who's a professor at Master's College here in the area. He grew up with devout Christian parents, several siblings in communist China. The family was under constant persecution while they were there. One day, in fact, the soldiers came to confiscate the family Bible that they had, but they were able to sneak it out before the soldiers had arrived. Yet for hours, the soldiers threatened them and beat them, telling to turn over their Bible, but they refused to do it. And so when a Bible had not been produced after some time, they began to beat the oldest son who was about 10 years old. But the parents would not give up their Bible. That little boy ended up dying from his beating. How valuable was the Word of God to Daniel's family? How valuable is it to you? How hungry are you? Let's pray. Lord, all I can say is, please, God, give us a hunger for your word. Lord, an insatiable craving that you've commanded us to have. We beg you for it, God. We beg you for the love and desire for your word, to value it as much as these dear saints did who gave up their lives but would not give up your word. Lord, please, please place in us just a great desire to to obey your word, to proclaim it. Lord, give us great humility and tenderness whenever we hear it read, whenever we read it ourselves, whenever it is proclaimed. Help us to remember Josiah's example and, and Lord, to listen intently and to, to hang on every word because it's from you. You are speaking. Lord God, give us a desire. Help us, Lord, to obey, read, and meditate your scripture. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you kept it preserved for us to have today. We thank you for your mercy and kindness. In your son's name, amen.